Results of Affiliation The effects of the affiliation is seen in the persecuting spirit. No church ever thought of force to repress error or uphold truth until it had first imbibed the spirit of the civil power. The civil power is founded on force, lives by it, and it is its only weapon of offense or defense. Christians enter civil government, drink into its spirit, and carry that spirit with them into the church. All force in religious affairs is persecution. The spirit of force is antagonistic to the spirit of Christ. They cannot harmonize. They cannot dwell in the same bosom. No man can serve two masters or cherish two antagonistic spirits. The result of it is that the spirit of Christ, the spirit of self-denial, of self-sacrifice, the forbearance and long-suffering, the doing good for evil, so fully manifested in the life and so fully taught by Jesus and the apostles, are almost unknown to the Christian profession of this day. The Sermon on the Mount embraced in the 5th, 6th, and 7th chapters of Matthew certainly contain the living and essential principles of the religion the Savior came to establish, those which must pervade and control the hearts and lives of men, without which no man can be a Christian. They are enforced by such expressions as these, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. And again, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Whoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, shall not be likened unto a foolish man, etc., which built his house upon the sand. These sayings of mine refer to the sayings presented in this sermon of Jesus, which constitute the laws that must control the lives of his subjects, and must rule in his kingdom. They are given as principles to be practiced, without which we are not and cannot be children of our Father which is in heaven. Yet the religious world of today, both Protestant and Romish, believe these principles not applicable at the present day. The laws and the spirit of civil government are more looked to to guide the church and regulate the lives of its members than the teaching of the Bible. Indeed, it is usually regarded that the church member may do anything the civil law allows, and what it allows is not to be prohibited in the church. This comes from the members of the church going into the civil government, imbibing their spirit, adopting their morality, and bringing them both into the church of Christ. A man cannot cherish in his heart two spirits, one to rule his religious life, the other to rule his civil life. He cannot adopt two standards of morality, one for his church life, the other for his political life. A man cannot serve two masters, or he will cleave to one and despise the other. That the political affairs and the standard of general morality may be elevated by the affiliation is possible, but the true spiritual life is destroyed by the affiliation. The antagonism between the principles laid down by Christ and those of civil government is so marked that in history the statement that they regulate their conduct by the Sermon on the Mount is equal to saying they take no part in civil affairs. 
The only people who claim to make the Sermon upon the Mount their rule of life are the small religious bodies who take no part in civil affairs. Some bodies of Quakers, Mennonites, Nazarenes, and Dunkards are individuals among the larger brotherhoods. But who can study the New Testament, the life of Christ, His teaching through His mission, the admonitions of the Holy Spirit speaking through the apostles, and for a moment doubt that Christ especially gave His sermon to regulate the hearts and lives of His followers? He gave it at the beginning of His ministry that all might understand the life to which they were specifically called. The Apostle Paul, in Romans 12 and verse 19, reiterated the principles of this Sermon on the Mount. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil but overcome evil with good. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 19 For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. The Spirit of Christ is driven out of the church, and the Spirit of the world takes its abode by this affiliation. So long as the idea prevails that it is allowable for Christians to enjoy the honor and emoluments and engage in the contests for worldly glory and honor by managing the affairs of the civil or worldly governments, and yet enjoy the blessings of God in this world and in that which is to come, so long will the young seek the service of the human rather than that of the divine. While they are taught they can satisfy the flesh and still enjoy the blessings of spiritual life, they will follow the way of the flesh. Along with displacing the Spirit of Christ in the church with the Spirit of the world, the world absorbs the talent, the time, the means that belong to the church, and leaves the church devoid of the Spirit of Christ, stripped of its strength and talent, and left without means." Various difficulties are presented to the position here taken, such as, if Christians give the government up to sinners and those rejecting God, what will become of the world? What will become of Christians? If all were converted to the Christian religion, we would still need civil government. How would the mail be carried? How could the affairs of railroads, manufacturers, and the many large corporations needful to the well-being of society be managed? To this last difficulty it is responded, when all are converted to Christ, 
all dominion and power and rule on earth will be put down and destroyed, and the rule and the dominion and the kingdom under the whole heavens will be delivered up to God the Father, that he may be all and in all. To the wisdom and power and management of him who created and rules the heavens, we will cheerfully commit the adjustment and management of all things pertaining to the world, to man and his well-being here or hereafter. And no true believer in God can have any apprehension of failure in aught that pertains to man's well-being here or hereafter. God was an immediate and ever-present ruler to man as he was first created and placed in Eden. Man refused to obey God, chose the devil as his ruler, and with himself carried the world into a state of rebellion against God. God ceased to be an immediate and present guide to man. The voice of the Lord God ceased to walk with and guide him in his paths. The Spirit of God forsook man and ceased to inspire his heart. Man's sin and rebellion separated between man and his God. But when man shall cease to sin, when man shall lay down the arms of his rebellion, when man shall come out of the earthly governments and turn with a full and earnest heart to the government of God, when all rule and all authority and power shall have been put down, then the kingdom shall be delivered up to God the Father, and he will be our God, the God of the human family and of this earth, and shall again dwell there, and they will be his children and walk under his guidance and direction. He will be all and in all. As to the other objections, while God does not rule in as a present guide to man in this world while in rebellion against him, he does overrule the affairs of earth so as that no evil shall come to him that trusts in the Lord, so that all things shall work together for good to them that love the Lord, so that he will keep him in perfect peace whose heart is stayed on the Lord because he trusted in him. Isaiah 26 verse 3 so that when a man pleases the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16, verse 7. So that he maketh the wrath of man praise him, and the remainder of wrath he will restrain. Psalm 76, and verse 10. Then again, Christian men, as has been heretofore presented, cannot be governed by Christian principles in civil government. Civil government rests on force as its foundation. The weapons of the Christian are not carnal, but spiritual. A ruler or an officer in civil government cannot carry into the execution of these laws the principles of the religion of Christ. To forgive his brother seventy times seven on repentance would destroy all authority in civil affairs. It is certainly true no Christian should go where he cannot carry the practice of the principles of the religion of Christ. The Savior presents the essential antagonism when he says, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, their subjects, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you, but whosoever will be great among you, let him be your servant, and whosoever would be chief, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. A man cannot be a follower of Christ and a ruler in the governments of earth. Again, Christian men out of place are as liable to do wrong as others. 
The protection and security of the Christian is that while he is doing his duty as a Christian in the walks God has appointed him, God will not permit him to be tempted above that which he is able to bear. But when he steps outside of the paths God has marked out for him, he loses this protection. Hence we find religious men often falling victims to the snares and temptations of the world as others. It is because they step outside of the limits of the Christian walk and so forfeit the protection of God. Again, the Christian spirit is a frank, open, unsuspecting one. A man that is suspicious of all, looking for evil in everyone, is a poor Christian. An unsuspecting nature in political affairs will be imposed upon, taken advantage of, and will be frequently used to carry out the aims and purposes of designing and corrupt partisans. There is but little doubt that President Garfield's frank, confiding, and unsuspecting nature led him without evil intent into connection with the credit mobiliar, which was a reproach to him. The very nature that was an ornament to the Christian so laid him open to the designs of the designing and corrupt that some of his nearest friends think it was to the credit of his administration that he died early. While we have President Garfield up as an example, it is well known that in early life he was a preacher. In later life he turned aside to politics and war, both essential to the conduct of civil government. After his experience through the war, it is said that he always refused to preach or to preside at the Lord's table. The reason was his hands were stained in the blood of his fellow men, and inasmuch as David was prohibited building in the material earthly temple on account of his hands being stained with blood, he could not take an active part in leading the hosts or building up the spiritual temple of God. This shows a commendably sensitive conscience. But every man who voted to bring on or perpetuate that war was just as guilty before God as the men who actively participated in it. Their souls were just as much stained in blood. This statement was published in The Watchman, Boston, Massachusetts, soon after Garfield's death. After it was in type, we learned through Elder F. D. Power, the preacher in Washington City, that Garfield did, after the war, preside at the Lord's table and exhort his brethren, though he never entered the pulpit. He that heard God's agent heard God. He that gave a cup of cold water to the least disciple of Christ in the name of Christ did it to Christ himself. This establishes fully that what we do through another or cause another to do, we ourselves do and are responsible for. Then again, he who maintains and supports an institution is responsible for the general results of that institution. The general and necessary results of human government are war and the use of carnal weapons to maintain the government. Everyone, then, that actively supports human government is just as responsible for the wars and bloodshed that grow out of its existence and maintenance as are the men who actively wage and carry on the war. Then every one who voted to bring about and carry on the war was just as much unfitted for service in the kingdom of God as was General Garfield or any other soldier in the army. The same is true of every man that supports and maintains human government. But religious men fail to make the best and fairest rulers in human government from other causes. The religious sentiment in man is the strongest, deepest, most permanent element of his nature. 
When this element is developed and cultivated and fully aroused, it is uncompromising and unyielding. God never intended it should be aroused to use carnal weapons. Aroused and guided by the principles of love and directed by the word of God, it is unyielding in self-sacrificing devotion to benefit and save man. But warped and perverted by the principles that control in civil governments and using the sword, it is implacable, unmerciful. In other words, men with their religious natures developed, then perverted by personal ambition as politicians, rulers, and warriors, are the most intolerant, implacable, and cruel of rulers. The worst despots of earth have been those that have commingled religious fervor with the ambitions and strifes of political rulers. The bloodiest paths, the most cruel desolation made in our country during the late war, were made by preacher warriors. The most intolerant of rulers, those slowest to end the bitterness and strifes of the war, are the religious bodies. The religious element in man is the permanent, uncompromising, enduring element of his nature, and the very qualities that make him a cruel and unrelenting despot with carnal weapons in his hand make him the self-sacrificing, devoted servant of God, willing to endure all things to save his enemies when clothed with spiritual weapons. Saul, the vindictive persecutor, hailing men and women to prison, and giving his voice for their death with carnal weapons in his hand, and the Apostle Paul dying daily and willing himself to be accursed to save his brethren the Jews, shows how differently the same person under the differing conditions acts. This shows that religion and devotion are only good in the path and for the ends for which God has fitted them. They are not in place ruling with the sword. Religious influence exerts a moralizing influence in society that benefits it and helps even civil government, but religion exerts its most benign effects as it influences persons and communities to adopt in their lives the precepts and principles of the religion of Jesus Christ, and so leads the world to a higher standard of morality and virtue.